0: Many of you know that I'm a teacher at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center in um, Northern California. And we have a big hall, which is called the Community Hall. And then we have another area of the Retreat Center, which is up on a hill where people do residential retreat. But in this hall down at the bottom, where it's just mostly for public um, meetings and classes... Uh, evening uh, talks, that sort of thing, for the, for the community, for the public. I really like teaching in that room, even though it's kind of just a, a, a bunch of trailers kind of stuck together in a big kind of module uh, building, which we placed on the land about 15 years ago, and inside the, inside the room there is a very large thangka on the wall. Thangka is a Tibetan painting. Of a deity or an archetype, um, it's about probably about the size of that middle section of the back wall here. It's very big, and it's a it's a painting of Avalokiteshwar. And Avalokiteshwar is a manifestation of compassion. It's very it's just when I sit and teach, it's just right right off the wall there. And the in the in the painting, this particular. Uh, archetype of Avalokiteshwar is uh, one that has uh, he has a thousand arms so there's like a halo all around him and of arms and hands and on each hand there's an eye painted and what that represents is this compassion, the manifestation of compassion where These thousand arms can embrace all the beings of the world. All these arms to hold all the suffering beings of the world. And all the eyes that are painted on the hands are to see, to stay awake. To stay awake to the pain and the suffering of all the beings in the world. And it's such a beautiful manifestation, it's a beautiful expression for me when I see that you know, it's just this possibility, an uh, uh, archetype, a deity, is really a manifestation of our own heart, of our own uh, mind, our Buddha mind. And this, this expression of compassion that each one of us has the capacity to know within ourselves is very powerful in this, in this great, immense capacity to hold and, and touch and care for all the beings in this world. It's just like this um, saying from uh, Ryokan, the 18th century Japanese Zen master and poet, when he says, Oh, that my priest's robe were wide enough to gather up all the suffering people in this floating world. Oh, that my priest's robes were wide enough. no. And I think when we hear that, you know, something is touched, something that we know is true and possible for us, you know, in, this, in some ways this longing or perhaps this urge that maybe some of you felt today when you were exploring the love of the practice, you know, where the, with the love, how, that, how you experienced the love of the practice and that uh, a movement of the heart to connect with truth, to connect with the way things really are, to come in connection with reality as it is. And today we're exploring some of the, the conflict with that and what gets in the way, this, these fixations, these uh, fixed ideas and views we have about ourselves and others and the way things are, and, and this, this view, or as someone was, was pointing out, this filter that kind of clouds the eyes, where you can't see clearly what's true, what's really there. We start to recognize that, to acknowledge that, and feel that, and, and, and begin to know that, and, and feel the pain of it, feel the unsatisfactoriness of that. But yet that love, that, that motivation, that interest to, to cut through or to break through. Sometimes we say to pull back the veil, the veil of illusion, that veil that, that, that filters, that interferes with really being able to see reality. And we might even be thinking, well, reality? What's, what is reality? You know, we talk about reality with a capital r or we talk about to see things as things really are you know which is the translation for the word vipassana you know insight insight to see things clearly to see things the way they they are and you know it's it's almost like what what is that what could that possibly really mean you know and yet we have moments where we begin to have some Clarity or some insight into some intimation, some revelation of what that is. It may be a moment when we really are standing on the earth and we're breathing, and we hear the sounds, we feel the air on our skin, we we feel that we're here in our bodies and, and connected to the earth. You know, just a moment like that, and there's something that feels real. You know, like we're here. We say we're here. It's real. This is true in this moment. And even though we may not be able to understand in kind of a, a, a broad way or a big way what, what is truth, what is reality, you know, these big words, you know, that they're so big we have to capitalize them, you know. And, and the mind, our mind, our small mind can't really wrap itself around that. No, the the what we usually use is in the intellect, the the thinking mind, the intellectual mind. It can you know, it just gets like can't go anywhere. Can't can't turn towards these kinds of concepts, these kinds of ideas. And so, if we think that's the only mechanism that we have to understand, we might just give up. We might just say, well, that's just too esoteric, or, you know, that's just too much, I'll never understand that. And, you know, we might just accept our limitation. And yet, we start to have some sense of something else that may be able to know. Something else that may be able to begin to touch even this kind of tangible, or this, this uh, feel, felt sense of something that's real, that the mind, our mind, our small thinking mind, the rational mind, can't even make sense out of. We can't even use it. You know? It's just like it's the wrong instrument. It's not refined enough. The intellect isn't refined enough to really begin to touch this very subtle and refined reality in which we live in that which we are. To know ourselves, to know ourselves at this level of being, beingness, which is not defined so clearly. It's not something we can wrap our usual concepts and our definitions and our usual views around when we start to know ourselves and know this humanity in this way. So this is part of a letting go. It's part of the practice that we do when we say, just turn away from the conceptual mind for a little bit you know not that it's wrong not that it's bad not that we can't use the intellect it's just we say just for you know the period of time when we're doing our meditation just let you know let it go let the thoughts go don't dwell on them don't get caught up in them don't analyze don't fabricate you know, just see what happens almost like as an experiment we often think of this practice as an experiment you know just see just take a look and see what happens as you begin to let go and start to feel into something else sometimes we say another reality a reality that isn't one that the small mind can make sense out of so as we do that as we do that there's the potential and the possibility where we begin to touch our heart And for me, how I understand it, it's like this mind, you know, using this thinking mind, this rational mind, you know, quite a lot. And this is where the habit is for us. As we start to let go, we're not so dependent on that. It's almost like the mind or the energy that was wrapped up in the mind starts to drop, drop into the heart. It's like the energy drops down. And some of you, you may have this feeling of the way the energy starts to drop down. And we're, we've been working with mindfulness of the body, bringing the, the attention and the energy more into the body. And it's kind of like a dropping down from the head, intellect, energy, which we're usually so caught up in as we drop down. And then we're starting to feel and sense and relate more from the heart. And we talk about these heart qualities the qualities that start to emanate from the heart, the, the qualities of, of particularly in Buddhist uh, uh, the Buddhist model of the Brahma Viharas or the divine abodes, these beautiful states of mind of of loving kindness and compassion, joy and equanimity. These beautiful states of mind. These, as Catherine mentioned, these immeasurable states of mind that of in heart. Mind, heart in, in uh, Sanskrit is really the same word, shitta. So mind dropping into the heart. So we're living more, we feel more this heart. Maybe some of you began to feel that today. You know, in the inquiry we're talking about the love, the love of the practice. You know, some of you expressed that, some of you talked about sort of the warmth, again, the heat, you know, more heat coming up, you know, as we, we start to touch into these more expanded or, or whole kinds of states within ourselves. So this is some of what we're moving into, is this heart, you know, this place of, of love and of compassion, and one of the wonderful things about, this, about the Buddhist tradition is that there is this very, very strong emphasis not only on wisdom and the cultivation and development of wisdom in our lives, but also the cultivation of compassion. You know, we often hear, you know, that Buddhism is like the two, be- two ber- uh, wings of a bird. You need two wings for the bird to fly, and so you have wisdom and compassion. Wisdom is the insight that can see into the way things are, clearly, discerningly, with discrimination. But sometimes that in itself can be a little dry, just a little sharp and cool. But the compassion, the love, the heart on the other side is warm and kind of juicy and moist and full. And they really balance each other perfectly and necessarily they need to balance each other. So we don't get too much caught either in the compassion or the wisdom. But both need to arise together and to express themselves together. Wisdom in the compassion and compassion in the wisdom. So we really see things clearly as we move into the world, as we we live in the world. Because as I said the other night, we are householders I think everyone in here has chosen the path of the householder or the layperson to be in the world rather than to renounce the world. And so there's some more expectation for us and how we're actually going to apply the wisdom of our insights into our life, living a conscious and wise life. This way, this way of practice, this way of, of living, I find to be such a deeply respectful way of life. And more and more as I develop in my own practice, I am always continually, um, um, what's the word, just very, very moved and very touched by how deeply we pay respect to everything. And perhaps that is something that we love about the practice, is this, in, this way that we're encouraged to pay respect to everything, to every moment's experience that arises within our own mind and in our body and, and in the outer world. Pay respect to ourselves, to other beings, to situations, to find a way to not reject not to divide, not to uh, uh, separate from, but see if we can really stay in contact, as we as we've been speaking about. How can we how can we stay in contact with life, as it moves, as it expresses itself, moment to moment to moment, and what is it that interferes with that? Really, really, understanding this sense of respect and dignity that we bring to our experience and all experience. I love this um, piece from Rumi that Catherine gave me. Uh, she read it, I think, last year. and Now I get to read it. Um, it. It goes like this. If God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms... There would not be one experience of my life, not one thought, not one feeling, not any act I would not bow down to. If God said, Rumi, pay homage to everything that has helped you enter my arms. And Rumi says, there would not be one experience of my life, not one experience of my life, not one thought, Not one feeling, not any act I would not bow down to. And this is more and more, perhaps, what we start to understand and and the attitude, the attitude that we can bring to our experience, whether we like what's happening or whether we don't like what's happening. And this is really the magnitude of the invitation for us is to bow down to everything. And we talk about the pleasant and the unpleasant and the, all the, the experiences in between, the neutral experiences in between. Bowing down to each one. Bowing down means making contact with, not rejecting, not pushing away, not splitting off from This is a real challenge, you know? It's a real challenge because we have so many conditioned strategies to separate. I don't want that. I like this. I don't want that. You know, talking to somebody today about this whole cultural movement towards pleasure, towards comfort towards convenience, and it's not just a cultural movement, it actually has more to do with our, with our um, biology, you know, that we're, we're really animal at, a, at, our, at the deepest level, you know, and, and we move towards life, we move towards that which feels good, we move towards uh, comfort, that's just a natural kind of movement that we are ingrained with as human beings. But yet when we start to use that as a strategy and we get fixed in that, what we're doing is we're just shutting out so much of life as it as it manifests, the 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 the, the whole the whole ten thousand sorrows. We have that phrase, the ten thousand joys and the ten thousand sorrows. And we can start to feel that, and we feel when we split or we separate, we reject how we feel, that, that unsatisfactoriness because we actually have to almost fragment ourselves. We have to, we're rejecting a part of ourselves, the self that doesn't like that. We don't like that, we don't want it, it doesn't feel good, it's just it's not the way, way we want things to go, It's you know it's not what I had in mind, it's not my plan. You know, I want it to be otherwise. And then we can get very indignant and very self-righteous and angry and controlling and demanding. But we know that that doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't help. We see how it it just reinforces more of our own pain and suffering. I mean, we're just doing it to ourselves. No one else is doing it to us. It's not happening from the outside. It's just our own mind. We're just giving our, give, making it difficult within our own mind. So finally, we, you know, we start to see this. And when we see it, we want to come out of it. We say, well, if it's just within my own mind, then there's some way that I can work with it. This is workable. If it's my mind, if it's all happening in my mind, this is workable. If it's just something I have to change out there, that's not very workable. But this is workable. And this is what really makes our, our our transformation possible, is because this is workable. We can we can deal with our own minds. But you can't you can't with somebody else's. Think we're starting to learn that. You know, I mean, how many of us, well, I should think, speak for myself, my, you know, you know, we, I, I kind of think of some early relationships where, you know, uh, it was really great in the beginning and then things don't start, you know, start turning and aren't going so well. I think, well, I'll just hang in here because that person will change, you know, we'll just I'll hang in long enough because if I stay here and really work, they'll, they'll change. You know, and then you hang in there, and you hang. They're not changing. There's more unhappiness, and it just doesn't work. You can't change the other. You can't control the other. We only really work within our own minds. I want to tell you um, a, a little a story of just this year. Just this sense of you know how how we have to come to terms with the way things are, and all of us have our own stories. Uh, This year, uh, in in January now, just in the last couple of years, I've been using that time to take some sabbatical time, because I'm traveling a lot and and, uh, teaching a lot through the year, and i now realize that I need some downtime. I need some time to rest and to look after myself. So, in January, in the last two Januaries, I've gone to Hawaii, which is really wonderful. And uh, uh, this year, I planned a three-week sabbatical on the Big Island, one of the one of the islands in the Hawaiian Islands. And I set it all up, you know, really was strategic. You know, I got a really nice place to stay in somebody's beautiful house overlooking the ocean. Uh, it was private, a private room. It could get a car, and I had a friend who was living nearby. And um, I didn't know the people who owned this house, but what I understood that it was all going to be very... Um, very suitable for my retreat. I was going to do sort of a semi-retreat, take time, do study, reflection, uh, meditation, some writing, some swimming, um, you know, really make it a really nourishing time for me. And so, and this is a precious time because I don't have so much time in the year. So I, I flew in, and got my car, and drove up to the house. It was the first time I was there. And as I was driving into the driveway, it's a really beautiful house, it's kind of a big driveway, drive through a security gate, and then up the driveway. And as I was driving up, there was, um, oh, the driveway was being extended. And uh, because the people who owned the house were kind of converting this into a semi-retreat center where some classes and community things could happen, and... um, there were two large steamrollers with uh, uh, putting in a tar road right next to where my room was going to be, and it, you know, just like with a, you know these steamrollers. I mean, they're they're big and they're dirty and they're hot and you know they're noisy and and I thought, oh. Okay, this is an interesting start to my retreat and my sabbatical, but it's a, it's a, you know it's okay, you know, and they said, Oh yes, we're very, very sorry, you know we've tried to get this to not happen when you arrive, but they're going to be done in two hours, you know, so okay, you know, so they were done they finished the finished that, and then what happened is that just right about a hundred feet from where I was staying. These uh, two fellows were building another structure because that's why the house was going to be empty, so that they would be in this other structure. But yet it wasn't finished. So the first ten days of my sabbatical, right in front of my room, just there's a road, just about you know maybe to the end of the of, end of the of the room here. Trucks were coming down and you know back and forth and they're pounding and banging in the house where they were actually building the house over there and uh, Lots of activity and in the house and the, the fellows had to actually stay in the house a little bit longer than they thought so there was a lot of activity in the house and then it's like okay <laughs> You know this is a really precious time, but so I was doing a retreat, right? So, retreat takes on the form that retreat takes on. We don't know what we're going to get. We just open ourselves. We offer ourselves to the space, to the time, and whatever shows up is what's there. That's what we get to work with. So, that was it. You know, this was my practice. I didn't like it. I didn't want it. I was paying a fair amount of money for this. But there you go. This is um, how it was. It was really good. You know, I really felt like I could find a place in myself because I was ready to take on this as a retreat and have that attitude of mind where open myself as much as I could to it. This was really a real good retreat for me. And at one point, it actually got to because I wasn't in a silence, uh, a silent retreat, where there became a time where an appropriate response, out of the place of real clarity and and uh, uh, groundedness and strength, was to go and talk to them and say. This isn't what I had in mind when I I created this. And it was really good, too. It was all part of the practice. You know, how to just say what was true and what was honest from that place of clarity that something's wrong here. It wasn't really the way things were supposed to be. And that was fine too. And it was really good for them because they felt really bad and they were really happy they felt that. No, I didn't. (laughs) That isn't what I meant. (laughs) No, it meant meant no. No, that isn't what I meant. So so what was what was good about that is that it kind of woke them up as well sort of like a little bit out of their trance, like, you know, it didn't matter. No, but it did matter. So it was a way of coming into truth together, coming into this reality together, that how? what are we going to do now? You know, we have a difficult situation. And then work with it, negotiate, and work with it together. And it was very good, so it was all part of it, all part of the retreat. And then once that, so they said, okay, we'll stop everything, and then everything shut down, and then... The next day, the woman who was just on the bottom of the house, just she had to move out because they were changing. This. And for four days, she had a moving truck, and she was moving <laughs> her stuff in and out. So, so that's kind of how it went. So there was no, there was no way around it. But, the, but again, it's just like, what do we, what do we bring to it? What are we bringing to it? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's not supposed to be this way. But actually, it didn't interfere on one level with the with a deeper sense of my practice because it was my practice. There was nothing outside. It wasn't like something else would have been better for my practice. I mean, how do I know that? Who can who can say that? So this kind of just just like oh, it's kind of a little bit of like a, a, a warrior spirit. It's like a, okay, this is here. How are we going to tend to it? What are we going to do about it? From as much wisdom, much compassion, feeling a certain compassion as well for these people, how do we do that? What well, was very interesting, you know, there's always, for me these days, there's always a subtext. You know, there's the, this story, and then there's another whole story. This is how things are going for me these days. You know, it's not just a one big thing. It's like, you know, layers of things. So while I was there, and some of you might, might know uh, James, James Hearn, who uh, is a old, was an old, old friend of Guy House from very early years who um, developed a brain tumor some years ago. And many of us are friends with him. And uh, uh, while I was in, in Hawaii and, and dealing with all of this as well, I was on the email tree that was going around about James, that James was in, put in the hospital, the brain tumor was getting uh, uh, bigger, and things were starting to get difficult, and I was getting emails every day about the progress and what was happening, and James was dying. And it was really wonderful for me to be part of the community in Hawaii, with the with the, in the uh, community, uh, to be to be engaged in the day-to-day uh, unfolding of what was happening for James, who's, who was a close friend of mine over the years here, uh, coming to sit retreats and being involved here. And the wonderful compassion and love and care and consideration that was going out to help James, to support James, and to be with James while he was dying. We didn't know exactly that he was dying at the time, but it got clearer and clearer and clearer that this was coming to the end of James's life. And I was able to write emails and to express my own uh, feelings and my own um, care about what was happening, even though I wasn't able to be there. And it was just this really amazing feeling of being part of this large community, this inner kind of global community in a way, to be on the other side of the earth and yet be so connected and so involved in James's dying process. felt very, very, very there with him. And I was able to send emails asking people to give James messages for me, and so that we were able to communicate in that way. It's so beautiful. And so there's these levels, multi-levels of, of different realities in a way that we're tending to, that we're, we're involved in, that we're, we're um, touched by and moved by. And when I was there, one of the um, one of the emails that, that came through, people were sending different some poetry and, and different um, expressions of their own feelings and what was happening for them as as, as James died and he died actually while while I was there. Um, this is somebody sent this email, this uh, poem. Uh, the last entry from Raymond Carver's book that he wrote while that while Raymond was dying of cancer and Raymond Carver is a 21st century famous writer and poet and this was his last entry and did you get what you wanted from this life even so i did and what did you want To call myself beloved, so feel myself beloved on the earth. Did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, so feel myself beloved on the earth. Just that. So simple. And I love that to feel myself beloved on the earth. Here. In the life, in this life. That that would be the most important thing. And what does it mean for you as you feel this, as you sense this, to feel yourself as beloved? What would that mean? Knowing this life is so fragile, it's so tender. We are so fragile. We are so tender. And in a way, I think that's why it's so hard to let ourselves feel ourselves as beloved because if we do, it means we are really open to ourselves the way we are. We really can accept and love ourselves the way we are. And that is very open and very unguarded, very naked in a way, very undefended. That. Is asking a lot. It asks a lot from us. And I think what's important is that we understand how much that asks of us because we might think that we should know that right now. Mm-hmm. That something's wrong that we might not know that right now or experience that in ourselves right now. There's some way that we already should be there, you know, and that because I'm not, then I'm bad or wrong or i got to do something or fix this. But this is a huge, huge task. No, in some ways, it may be the goal of the practice. It's using different language. It's not the beloved is the language of, of other traditions. But I love this word. To know myself as beloved. Love. To love. Love is not outside of our tradition. And so I think this is why we pay respect. We pay respect. Bow down to ourselves just the way we are. Because because if we don't, it, it is disrespectful. You know. It's a way we are not kind to ourselves, not treating ourselves well. And so so in this practice, this is such an important aspect of, is, is, is the kindness, is the compassion, is the love, is the cultivation of this. Because things are out of control. Things are out of control. We would like to be able to control our reality and have things the way we'd like them to be, but we can't. And we have some idea that we can make sense of this reality, and then then manipulate our experiences to fit what we think is supposed to be happening. And where do we get that idea? (laughs) I mean, when we really think about it, when we really consider it, how can I know what's best for me, or for another person, or for this world, for this earth, for this? What's going on? How can I know? When we really open it up. This is one of my favorite stories. Fortunate, unfortunate story. And I heard this very early on in my practice, and it's one I think of a lot as I go through the days. And I just it, my little phrase for it is fortunate, unfortunate, fortunate, unfortunate. So we don't know. We just don't know. So this is about a farmer and his son, a Taoist farmer. A man named Seng Wing, Sei Weng, Sei Wing, owned a beautiful mare which was praised far and wide. One day, this beautiful horse disappeared. The people of this village offered sympathy to Se Wang for his great misfortune. Se Wang sa- says simply, that's the way it is. A few days later, the lost mare returned, followed by a beautiful wild stallion. The village congratulated Se Wang for his good fortune. He said, that's the way it is. Sometime later, Se Wang's only son, while riding the stallion, fell off and broke his leg. The village people once again expressed their sympathy at Se Weng's misfortune. Se Wang again said, that's the way it is. Soon thereafter, war broke out, and all the young men of the village, except Se Weng's lame son, were drafted and were killed in the battle. The village people were amazed at Sei Weng's good luck. His son was the only young man left alive in the village. But Sei Weng kept his same attitude. Despite all the turmoil, gains, and losses, he gave the same reply. That's the way it is. Just these wheels of fortune. You know, we think something's really good or really bad, and then shoo, the turn happens. How do we know? The mind, the, the small rational mind, wants to pin it down, find some security in it, so that we can feel some ground, we can feel some sense of um, safety, some security under ourselves because we know the way things are and the way they're going, but actually we don't. and it's. And it's hard to really let it in, but the, but I think the reason it's hard to let it in is because we actually know that we don't know. We feel that vulnerability. We feel our insecurity. We feel our fragility. But we'll do anything we can to defend against it, to guard against it. Because we really know. <laughs> we really know. Deep down, that We can't control the way things are. We can't control our mind, we can't control our bodies, our emotions, our situations, the lives, the way things unfold in our life. I think the difficulty is sometimes is that we can kind of get things pretty well Secure and comfortable, and you know we find our meditation spot, and nobody really, nobody else sits there. Or we find our meditation path, and nobody else enters our meditation path. And this is my path, and you know we have the place where I sit when I go to lunch, and you know no. So we can kind of create these sort of comfortable, secure, uh, familiar little places for us. So we get the illusion sometimes that we can control our environment, and then our house burns down, whatever it is. You know, something happens. One more story. My brother-in-law, who I'm very close to, my sister's been married to him for about 20 years, he's about 55 56, 56 and he his father died when he was hmm, in his late teens early 20s his father died of heart uh, heart can uh, heart uh, attack heart disease when he was father when his father was 55 and so the whole time david was growing up he was concerned genetically that he was going to have the same heart weakness, and when he was going to be 55, that maybe something similar was going to happen. So David became very, very healthy, and he is very strong, and he works out, and he eats great, and he takes vitamins, and all this kind of stuff. Goes to the doctor, takes great care of himself. I mean, really, one of the the strongest,, healthiest, healthiest people that I know. So he did everything he possibly could to take care of himself. and then his 55th birthday was rolling around. this was last, year, last uh, late last year. So you could imagine sort of like, okay, you know, here we go. And because he's quite sensitive to what was happening in his body because of this concern, this worry, one, one Friday, he um, was, wasn't feeling right when he was working out at the gym, and he wasn't feeling right, so he thought he'd just go to the doctor, which he did, and just have, have the doctor look at him and check things out. And the doctors did a test and they found out that uh, he had three blocked arteries in his heart, and they immediately put him in the hospital. They did an operation on him, and within, because of the because of the medical technology now, they were able to well, clean out the arteries, put in some stents, and make you know everything, get his heart back to order. And within three days, it was like Friday. By Monday, he walked out of the hospital and started work the next day. It was fine because now they can, now he they don't have to do they don't have to do any surgery. They can go, go up in different uh, er- ways in the, in the body, and they don't have to do any surgery. So he was, they just did this, and then he was out. Oh, that really was shocking. No matter what he did, he did all the right things. He couldn't have done anything more to help himself, to, to, to keep this from happening, and still... If he hadn't gone to the doctor on that Friday, he could have died of a heart attack the next day. It was that close. It was that close. So it was just good that he was able to feel in and be sensitive enough, which he had cultivated through the years, to know when something was a little bit off, and then they got it. When I heard the story, it was just just like, uh, again... You know, we think we can do everything we possibly can to prevent the very worst fear, the very thing that we don't want to have happen. And somebody else is writing the script. So I always say. Who's writing the script? Who's writing the script? You know, as much as I would like things to be otherwise, things are the way they are. So what do we do? What do we do? This is our practice. Coming to terms with this. Coming to terms with the way things are. The sense of me, the sense of I, this ego that, that, that has a sense that somehow we can create our realities the way we want them to be. But then, again and again, we're confronted with different kinds of experiences, mind states, emotions, feelings, situations. And we are asked to let go of our demands, let go of our agendas, our expectations, our wants. All this, this ego, this is the ego, the position of the ego. Who am I? Who am I as I start to loosen up that structure? Who am I? What's there? What's left? How does life express itself when I get out of the way? When I back up a little bit and let life unfold, not in a random way, not in the irresponsible way, not in a passive way, just when I needed to talk to those gentlemen about what the situation, so we could renegotiate some things. We're not passive, but by being so here, so present, and connected to Reality, then there's the possibility for some response, as we, as Catherine was speaking, this appropriate response, the appropriate response in this moment, and then this moment, and this moment. And who am I? Who is the one who is responding from this place of wisdom and compassion? Who is that one? Can I, can I know that one? I think this is what we're, what we're exploring here. So who, who am I as I start to loosen up these old conditioned patterns, these old habitual responses, or we call them reactions, these old, old ways that we get caught in reactivity? Who, who am I then? So this not knowing, in way of not knowing, opening. We have to open, in a way, to the, to the insecurity, to the, to the uncertainty, to the unknowing, which doesn't involve our small, rational mind, because the mind knows things. So moving more into this unknowing, and then this trust, a kind of trust that, that, that gets cultivated as we, as we feel into this, and, and, and trust into this unknowing, which really is the doorway into the mystery. The mystery, we talk about the mystery, that, that which we don't know, the, the unfamiliar, it takes a great deal of trust. And as we do that, we we start to get a little bit more familiar with the ground of trust. And I really like the word ground. We often talk about the ground of, of being or the ground of trust. Because in a way, we start to feel a ground. Like there is something that we can step onto. There is something that is holding us. There is some support under us as we let go of our old Ways of doing things, our old, our old uh, conditioned responses. We 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 can we feel that more. Ta- people have spoken about that that way that there there's some way that they can feel more tangibly that sense of being held or 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 that, that ground that supports. And we get to know this more and more and trust it more and more and can relax into that more and more. Let go more and more into that. This is this is the invitation yet we need to find out for ourselves. We need to find out as we cultivate cultivate this love, the love and the respect and the care for ourselves and for others the way we are. And this love, and this love is an open kind of allowing, more trusting way of being. So we have to be very gentle with ourselves, Very um, can't force this or push this or have strong expectations for this because we're asking a lot. And I know for myself, I never realized how much I was asking of myself. I always thought I should be able to open my heart right now. What's wrong with me, that my heart isn't more open right now? And as I've become uh, older and and more, um, I would say, more mature in my practice, I hope, um, I just understand the size of the cloth, in a way. The size of the cloth. This is really big. And so this... Encouragement for this deep respect, and care, and, and and gentleness that we really need in this practice. And I, I'll end with with just one more one more Hawaii Hawaii story because I I love this story and and I I may have told it last year because um, it happened a year and a half ago when I was in Hawaii and. Um, you know this kind of opening to the to the mystery and the in the, the unknowing. Um, I was I was spending a week with a friend who invited me uh, at this at this resort in Hawaii this time, and um, really wonderful place for a week. And um, it was just before, well, a few months before one of my big bigger birthdays. And uh, I won't say which one right now. <laughs> and, um, and so this was kind of a birthday mm, few months. When I celebrate a birthday, I celebrate a birthday for a month or two. It's not just a day. <laughs> And so this was kind of a birthday celebration to myself. So this last um, day before we were going to leave, and my friend who I was with, this girlfriend, she really liked uh, swimming at at twilight in the ocean, and the ocean was wonderfully warm. So we were going swimming at about 5 o'clock just before dinner. And so we went out. There weren't many people in this little cove in the ocean where this resort resort was. And so we went out. We were just paddling around a little bit, and then we... We see this helicopter that's, that's flying up above, and the, the, the doors open to the helicopter, and then the, somebody opened up this sack. And all of a sudden, these things started falling out of the sky, and, and we didn't know what, what was coming down. It was kind of coming down right on us. And <laughs> And as they started coming down further and further, and touching the water, we saw that there were roses and orchids falling out of the sky, <laughs> and the water all around us filled with rose petals and orchids. <laughs> and, and we're just kind of, you know, swimming around like, well, this is very interesting. <laughs> you know, why is it that you know tonight? Right as we're swimming, somebody (laughs) drops bags of roses and orchids all over us. And it was very mysterious and very amazing to be swimming in warm Hawaiian (laughs) ocean water and roses and orchids. And it was really just so, so mysterious. You know, just like, can you... Plan something like that? Well, I suppose you could, but we didn't. And then, you know, we became very curious how something like this could happen. And so, um, when we were at dinner, we were asking around, like, "Do you know why this helicopter came and dropped all these flowers?" You know. And then we found out that halfway down the beach, um, pretty far down, there was a gathering of some people. Uh, celebrating a woman's 60th birthday, and they had hired this helicopter to dump the, ro- <laughs> <laughs> the roses and the orchids for her. <laughs> but the timing wasn't very good. <laughs> and the way the wind was blowing wasn't very good. So they came falling on me and my <laughs> So it really is such a wonderful, I think a wonderful example of this. I mean, who's who's writing this, you know? Who's writing this? So just this capacity just to open to this immense mystery, this immense possibility of this creation. And maybe we could even say this benevolence, the benevolence that arises here, moment to moment in this form of life, life expressing itself, moment to moment, so that we can wake up. We can wake up to the truth, to reality, in this moment right now. Let's sit for just a minute. And you can stay right where you are. You don't have to get to another place.